Welcome back to On the Cusp, the podcast that hears from some of the most innovative people tackling threats in the grey zone. To our new listeners, a special welcome. I'm your host, Elizabeth Braw, and I work on these issues as a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Well, just the other day, an 18-ton defunct Chinese satellite plunged into the Indian Ocean, though it could have easily landed on dry land and harmed both people and buildings. And today there is, in fact, a fast-growing number of satellites in space. Over the past few years, Elon Musk's company SpaceX has launched around 1,400, although I think it's soon about to be 1,500, satellites into space. And that number has virtually doubled the number of active satellites in space. By 2030, which is only nine years from now, we're expected to have around 100,000 satellites orbiting the Earth. And those satellites will be making life very convenient for us. And so will all the other activity going on in space. And that is a lot of activity because dropping costs have made it possible for smaller companies, startups to get into space and to get into space research and activities. Plus, on top of that, the Elon Musk factor has made space cool. So there's a remarkable space race going on, not between governments anymore, but in the private sector. And that means that we have a lot of of traditional satellite communications companies that have been there for a number of years, but we also have interspace transportation companies, we have space mining companies, space factories, and much else. Or at least all of this is being developed thanks to massive amounts of venture capital being invested. And at the same time, though, there are virtually no rules in space. There is a treaty that governs activities in space, but it's outdated and there is no agreement and seemingly no appetite for a new one, which means that space is becoming extraordinarily chaotic. And while space is obviously far away, all of this has implications for the rest of us here on Earth. For example, what if defunct satellites crash on dry land and not just one, but regular such crashes? Or what if they collide with active satellites and make those satellites defunct as well? And who is going to clean up space? It's the student dorm dilemma again. Nobody feels responsible. Now, people always say about the problem that that should be easily solved, but at least it's not rocket science. Well, this is rocket science. Fortunately, I have a guest with me who is better suited than almost anyone else to sort out this chaos for us or to explain it. And that's Mark Dickinson, Executive Director of the Space Data Association, which is the leading space industry association. Now, Mark is a true rocket scientist. He gained his PhD in high-energy astrophysics at the University of Durham and has worked in increasingly senior positions in the space industry ever since, meaning he has watched all of what we are now seeing unfold. On one hand, it's, it's exhilarating that humanity is on the cusp of using space, not just visiting and researching it and using it for, for a bit of telecommunications, as has been the case until recently. On the other hand, the risk of damage to us and to the Earth is considerable. So, so what do we do about it? Very good question. So society and all aspects of human life is coming ever more dependent upon systems and services provided by space, whether it's navigation services like GPS, whether it's Earth observation, looking at environmental aspects, whether it's communication aspects, human society has that dependency and that dependency is growing year upon year. And most people, if you talk to most people in society, they don't actually understand or realise they have that dependency on space. And also there isn't really appreciation of the threats and the risks that these systems are operating in within the space environment. There are treaties, as you mentioned, and there are best practices and there's bodies trying to create standardization about how things should operate in space. 
But these are really, really at the best practice type of level. There aren't rules of the road. There aren't regulations stipulating that everyone must abide by the same rules and the same principles, which is creating somewhat sort of an anarchic situation. As you mentioned, there's a huge amount of innovation that's happening in the space sector. And you just look at the amount of startups there are in the last five years. And again, you mentioned the venture capital, the money that's coming in to these systems. And they're being developed almost in, in, in isolation without taking a step back to look at what the overall space environment will end up being like. So it's a really exciting time, but it's also a bit of a scary time. If we don't get our house in order now, we could be looking at an environmental issue, and not just for years, but potentially hundreds of years. Things, things in orbit last a long time if they're reasonably far away from the Earth. And so I think it's imperative that we have a culture of responsible operations and we have guidelines and rules that people have to, to stick to. So, yeah, we're a, bit, we're a bit in this limbo land when space has evolved over the years. And in, in the, probably from the 1960s to the 1980s, space was a, the domain of large governments, sort of the Cold War era. There was the, in the 1990s and the 2000s, you then start seeing large organizations getting involved in deploying capabilities in space. You saw satellites being launched at somewhere called geostationary orbit. You saw some constellations in the late 90s. In fact, all of them went bankrupt. A couple survived today uh, and can be successful companies once they've written off many billions of dollars of initial investment. But now in the last five years in particular, as you mentioned, we're seeing a whole range of companies coming in and there's some really exciting stuff there. But unless we look at the big picture, take a step back and seeing at the overall environmental and operational environment they're working in, we run the risk of creating an environment which is unsustainable for the long term. And that's why it requires governments to work together to be able to come up with the frameworks and the rules that everyone in space has to abide by. Yeah, I'm reminded a bit of, of the startup craze in, in the late 90s and, and uh, specifically WebRAN, which was going to be this fantastic IPO. And then it went public and people realized, why do we need WebRAN? And it was a dramatic collapse, not just of WebRAN, but of, of the first dot-com boom. And it seems to me that, that we're at risk of, of entering a similar scenario when it comes to space startups, where lots of entrepreneurs get into the space sector because it's, it's, it's where you need to be at the moment and there's lots of venture capital available. But unlike the first dot-com boom, there will be real consequences if these companies fail because they will leave their equipment in space, it seems to me, if nobody's responsible for cleaning up in space. Yeah, exactly. And you're in a situation now where you have the two richest people in the world in Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. Both own their own rocket companies, Blue Origin and SpaceX, respectively, and both have more than plans. Elon Musk, as you said, has launched 1,500 satellites and seems to be launching another 60 every week or so. And Jeff Bezos with the Amazon Kuiper constellation. So you have the two richest people in the world in this field, and that attracts a lot of interest. You also have a large number of engineers who've worked for these companies and think, actually, I've got a cool idea. I can do something. And when they put their proposals together, they say they've worked for these very high-profile companies. They get funding for some really cool ideas. But there isn't the framework, the regulatory framework of today, 
for all these ideas to work in, in unison. I was pu pulling out before this uh, discussion, I was pulling out some facts and figures, what, what's been happening recently. And if just look at last month in April, there were five in space alone, there were five M&A transactions with a value of around $1.2 billion. Mergers and And you look at the startup, yeah, for those acquisitions. And if you look at the sort of the, the equity side of new startups, there are 24 that completed financing rounds in last month alone, raising another $1.4 billion of investment. So there's a lot of money. There's a lot of cool tech. There's a lot of very bright people. And that's just looking at the, the sort of the private side. If you look at what nation states are doing, or even groups of nations, the European Union is talking about its own mega constellation in Leo. The Chinese have started have formed a new company for joining together a couple of their con their couple of their concepts they had to have their own mega constellations. And this is where, when you mention the hundred thousand satellites, this is where you end up. You you have many either commercial companies or nations determining what their own capability and they launched their own systems. And five years ago, there were roughly 1,500 active spacecraft in orbit. That number, as I say, can well increase above 50,000. Even if you look at all the potential satellites known about today, it's closer to 100,000. And we don't have the capabilities, the capabilities to be able to track and monitor where these objects are to ensure we know where they are, where they'll be in the future to avoid collisions. They're not, that capability isn't keeping up with the deployment. And the regulatory environment certainly isn't keeping up with this deployment rate. And that's where the, the issue comes with. If you look at the, the objects that are moving in space and you need to keep track of where they are, and you need sensors to be able to monitor where they are and work out the orbit to work out where they'll be in the future to make sure they're not going to hit something else. And the number of objects that have to be tracked per sensor is increasing rapidly, especially in somewhere called low Earth orbit. So I'm, if, we, if we break up the, the altitude above Earth, you have something called LEO or low Earth orbit, which is from around 400 kilometers or, or, or a bit lower up to maybe 1,500 kilometers. You then have a radiation belt where it's difficult for satellites to operate. You have something called MEO or medium Earth orbit, which is above that, and that's where things like the GPS satellites or the navigation constellations that we, we all use today. And then beyond that is an altitude called geostationary, where there's a lot of satellites not sitting today, because that's at the orbit that's exactly one Earth day. So if you're stood in the Earth and looking at the sky, these satellites remain fixed in the sky. So that's a very special orbit. And then you have the things beyond, and people talking about going to Mars and going to the Moon. Space is a complex environment with different dynamics in each of these orbital domains. And what we don't have today, or what we won't have, is a capability to keep track of all these objects in some of these orbital domains. If I understand the situation correctly, it's, it's a matter of both of environmental concerns, of, of making sure that we don't leave space completely cluttered and that uh, that's unusable for future generations. And it's also a matter of just keeping space operational for ourselves, because the more we, stuff we put there and the less control we have over what is there, the larger the risk is for, for collisions and, and as a result for, for the satellites and other things becoming unusable. Exactly. I'm and this is a, this is a good example in terms of why the regulations are sort of lagging behind the innovation. There, there is a sort of enforced guideline that in LEO, you should decommission your, your satellite, should come back into the Earth's atmosphere 
and burn up essentially within 25 years of the end of its operational life. And that rule was probably fine for maybe when there was a thousand satellites in LEO and it was more manageable. If you're now talking about 60, 70,000 satellites in orbit, these constellations will need to be replenished because the lifetimes of the satellites are quite short. You end up with a huge number of satellites in LEO and the, the, the probability of a collision, either with debris or with another active satellite, increases hugely. So the regulations now need to, need to be evolved to be able to take account of this very different operational environment. And the issue is a collision, especially in LEO, where you have very high relative velocities, will create a huge amount of debris itself. And we saw a collision back in 2009 between an Iridium satellite and a defunct Russian satellite, which created one of these debris clouds. And that debris is still around with us today. And the, the scary scenario is that you have, a, you have a collision in future, which creates more debris. That debris goes on to create more collisions. And essentially, you get this cascade effect that's been termed the Kessler syndrome, where essentially you have debris generation events, which create further debris generation events, which essentially creates a sphere, a shell around the Earth of rubbish that you can't get through. And you have the possibility of future access to space being denied because we weren't able to manage the satellites we did have and track the debris. That really would be a disaster for humanity that if we, for years, tens of years, even potentially hundreds of years, have a, have a situation where we no longer have access to space. And that's why it's imperative that we have good rules, that all people abide by good operational norms and expected behaviors from people. We have good sensors to be able to monitor what's up there to make sure that we can avoid these collisions in the first place and that everyone sort of plays along to the same rules. We need to evolve. We need to become more mature, not just the innovation side is working great. And I think you've seen the money coming in. We've seen great ideas, very smart people doing that. What we need to do in parallel is bring along the other side of the equation to make sure that these things can operate in a sustainable manner. Yeah. It's it's like building highways without putting any any rules or indeed police officers there to enforce the rules and and so it raises the question who should be the regulator in space or who who should be the the entity or the or the country that polices space because clearly it doesn't work if if it's just left to countries and companies and goodwill they may have it but it's not commercially advantageous for them to or advantageous in any other way to to behave responsibly so who who is going to be that enforcement entity Yeah, and, and I think that's something that the space community has, has struggled with. This is a truly international problem. Space is not like air traffic control where a certain country looks after its own airspace. Space is truly international. Those satellites which are over the US in one minute, 35 minutes later may be over China the next minute. So it really, it really is a true international issue. At the moment, the individual regulators within each country essentially keeps track and, and regulates the operators within that country. So, for example, we have the UK Space Agency in the UK, there's CNES in France, there is the FCC in the US. These are the regulator bodies. What we need is true international collaboration in setting up what these norms of behavior are. So there's a lot of best practice, there's a lot of sort of standards, but there's a, there is a lack of sort of agreed norms of behavior between everyone in space. Because 
if someone else has a collision, it soon becomes everyone's problem. This isn't like an environmental issue on, on the earth where if one country is a polluter within their own country, like a, for an oil spill, for example, it's their problem for cleaning up. This soon becomes an international problem because that debris will pollute all the orbits, uh, all, all the satellites in that orbit. And that's why it really creates that sort of, that's why it really needs that sort of international focus. And that has proved to be difficult. But I think it's something that's imperative that all governments look at and have the concept that actually working together here is a long-term sustainability issue yeah. for everyone involved. Yeah. And while countries have disagreements in other areas, it, it is, they don't even have to act morally. They just have to act in their own interest to see that there need, needs to be more regulation and, and policing of space activities or otherwise, as you said, they themselves and their countries and their, the companies based in their countries will lose access to, to space as well because it will be too crowded. Now, if I can move on quickly to two activities by, by governments in space, it used to be only governments that were active in space. Now, now they share this commons with all these companies that we have been discussing. But as I understand, there is quite a bit of ungentlemanly activities, activity by countries vis-a-vis other countries in space, meaning that they perhaps listen in or disable perhaps other countries' equipment in space. Is that something that has happened frequently or what can we say about that? In other words, is, is there a bit of unfair play among governments in space in addition to, the, to this general chaos created by, by private companies? Well, yes, and there are sort of UN charters regarding the non-proliferation of weapons in space, but we have seen space become a more of a of a military zone as well. And there's, it's it's said that space is congested and contested. Nation states are deploying capability in orbit, which do have a military aspect to them. You've, we've seen anti-satellite weapons being used. We've seen the Chinese blew up one of their own weather satellites. There was an Indian test a couple of years ago. And those events themselves are debris generation events. The, the debris created from the explosions, again, are still with us today. So I don't think yes, those, are particularly respons- those aren't particularly responsible acts in themselves. The space has long had this sort of dual use aspect to it. And that's why sort of having these established operational norms will help in terms of probably both in terms of sort of a deterrence aspect, but also making sure that situations don't become, don't escalate. If you have one nation's satellite getting very close to another nation's uh, national security asset, what is that? Is that, a, is that a direct threat to it? Is it it's, it's hard to tell what the intent of an action in space is without sort of established norms of behavior. That's right. And it creates then situations where the response, where the targeted country, even if it's unintentionally targeted, may see it as an act of provocation and respond, and then it can quickly escalate out of control. And it it seems to me that this situation with regards to government's activities in space, it's it's reminiscent of the reality we had before serious arms control with regards to nuclear weapons, where at some point the US and, and at that point the Soviet Union decided that while they both wanted to win, it was in, in, <laughs> in each country's direct interest to limit the increase in, in nuclear weapons and eventually also to, to reduce the number of nuclear weapons. Mark, I wanted to, to ask you as well, most of us are not rocket scientists, we are lowly consumers and the 
the most immediate effect I think we would see from from problems in space, and whether from from this sort of Kettler effect that you described, where there is so much debris that it knocks out functioning satellites and, and other assets, whether it's an effect of that or of hostile behavior by by some group or, or, or government. The most immediate effect we would see is that our smartphones would be affected in some way. And and how how serious is that, do you think? I mean, I, I think the most obvious way is that our maps wouldn't work anymore. But what exactly would, would this mean for, for daily life if there were to become a some sort of disruption of space activities? Well, essentially, the trains will stop running on time. The use of space services is so prevalent in our systems that the vast majority of people don't know it's there. And exactly. so many systems use, use navigation. So there was a report the Blackett report in 2018 in the UK that made an assessment of how much would a day of no space cost the economy. And it was multiple billions. Essentially, large parts of the economy, the finance system uses timing systems for all their transactions. There's a whole bunch of logistic things that use positioning information. Aircraft would stop, wouldn't be able to fly without their positioning information. So the whole of our society is built upon a lot of capability from space that needs to be assured. So, yeah, it's a, this is a very quickly becomes a multi-billion pound dollar issue, even for a fairly short duration day without space type of event. So it, it is very important that when people are developing critical services, that that level of resilience is brought about. And that's why Last part of why lots of space systems are still so expensive because they need that high level of reliability. They become part of sort of critical national infrastructure because so much of society is based upon the services they provide. So yeah, it's, it's, if it was a day without space, we'd notice very quickly. And that's an exercise I think would not be bad for for us ordinary consumers to engage in. To imagine a day without space-based services, and and we would obviously have to learn first because what what those are, because we are so incredibly ignorant about how dependent we are on space. But the second step would be to imagine what we would do for one day if space-based services were to be knocked out. Thank you very much, Mark Dickinson, Executive Director of the Space Data Association. I think you have explained very clearly and with due urgency, the incredible challenges that we face in space, not because anybody has ill intentions, although there are some with ill intentions too, but simply because we have been putting too much stuff into space without considering the consequences. So thank you, Mark. My pleasure. Thank you. As always, if you're not already a subscriber, please feel free to subscribe on Apple and Spotify. And as always, feel free to comment on those two platforms and of course on Twitter where you can tweet to me at Elizabeth Raw. Many thanks, as ever, to our producers Olivia Leslie and Anya Terrell. We'll be back very soon with another episode and another guest who is doing pioneering work. See you on the cusp.